to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broadest sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. If I say River Cottage to you, what comes to mind? Perhaps one of its campaigns, Fish Fight or Chicken Out or War on Waste? Or maybe you've got one of the River Cottage handbooks diving deep into foodie topics from cheese to charcuterie. And that's the striking thing about River Cottage and its team, the variety of what they do. What started as a docudrama following Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's attempts to set up his own small holding 20 years ago has now grown into a cookery and chef school, three award-winning kitchens and the base for amazing banquet-style get-togethers. Stephen Lamb has been part of that journey pretty much from the beginning. He arrived as the team's new media expert, helping to build its presence online. But nowadays, he's better known as the cottage's curing and smoking guru, as well as its expert on cheese and dairy. In this, the first part of a two-part conversation, we will explore the evolution of River Cottage and Stephen's own career, leaving Big Brother behind to embrace hospitality from a standing start. Enjoy the conversation. Stephen Lamb, thank you so much for sparing the time to uh, to be on the podcast. Very much appreciated. Would you mind just explaining where on planet Earth we are, please? Because you've taken me on a quite an adventure already today. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are in the family log cabin in deepest, darkest Dorset. Uh, and uh, I scribbled you away from uh, Rove Cottage HQ uh, because of the uh, impending weather coming in. And I thought, why not go somewhere a little bit quieter, uh, deep in the heart of the countryside, comfortable. And actually, this is a place that we use. Uh, it's a great place for cooking. We call it a cook's cabin. Um, we come here, we cook, we spend loads of time here as a family. Um, I've done a bit of filming in here with my YouTube channel. So I thought, yeah, why not? Amazing. It yeah. is deeply authentic. You kind of think, you know, maybe River Cottage is just this, you know, orchestrated thing on the telly and, uh, you know, and it's all a facade. But here we are genuinely surrounded by trees. There's a polytunnel I saw in a greenhouse and a shed and it's all made of wood. I feel like I'm in a, it's way better than a film set. So it, well, absolutely. It's the real deal. And um, perhaps, you know, it would be no surprise for me to suggest that there isn't very much integrity in television, uh, although at River Cottage, it kind of did showcase the things that we were doing. You know, we were actually growing the stuff, learning, uh, trying to get close to all the good things about uh, food, food production. Uh, and so it couldn't have been a film set. Uh, it's an actual physical place. Um, of course, it's a backdrop to a TV programme. Uh, it is a cookery school. It's an organic farm. It's a place where people can come and stay and 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 live it for themselves. So you know, you quickly get found found out, don't you? If it's not the real deal, definitely, yeah, that authenticity and and it has become so multifaceted from what it was originally, I suppose. It's and certainly it feels like it's been there for such a long period of time. In my kind of, you know, it existed before I got into hospitality and before I got into food and drink. But I really remember specifically, I think, kind of, you know, chickens and Tesco's and there's certain key things. Most recently, plastic, but there's 
there's certain key things where I think River Cottage has been at the heart of um, probably the country's understanding, I suppose, of, of of our impact on the environment. And it's been it's been nice that it's kept that authenticity and consistency over you know now a couple of decades, so that you are almost the the continuing story as we learn uh, about our impact. I guess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the trajectory is kind of. Uh, fairly unique in the world of television. Um, we're currently in our 20th anniversary, uh, which is, in terms of a business, it's quite young, isn't it? But I think in terms of television, it's ancient. And it, I guess it started off as light entertainment, but it was aspirational. You know, Hugh would learn how to avoid going back to the rat race and meeting people authentic people, real people, uh, and, and learning their skills, how to keep pigs, how to grow their own veg, how to have uh, a positive or uh, neutral impact on the environment. And, and that underpinned everything. But of course, you've mentioned campaigning, uh, which is something that's evolved from that light entertainment. It's a bit more robust, a bit more grown up. And I think uh, if you have that platform or that window out onto the world, which is television or media, and if you use it with uh, a voice and a purpose, like you does, then it, it, I think that makes for a brilliant way of getting a message across. And yeah, okay, so it was chicken out and it was the fish fight and it's plastics. And you don't just want to be the company that rolls out, what should we campaign for this year? It's definitely uh, a medium that you can uh, make an impact. And I suppose being employed uh, or, or, or being part of that whole um, ethos, it, it makes your kind of daily working life have more than meaning, uh, more of a meaning. And, you know, outside of River Cottage, here we are in the family log cabin, you have to kind of continue that. You can't just do nine to five, yes, I'm an organic uh, or free range supporter of high welfare um, farming, and then go home and do the opposite. You've got to see it through. And I think, you know, that makes it perhaps less of a job more of a way of life. Mm. I don't think you can unlearn things, can you? I think as we, you know, we start this journey, we don't know what we're going to learn in our in our journey. And I'm sure Hughes and your story was the same, but you, you end up getting all of this knowledge. And I think if you've got an opportunity to communicate that knowledge and it's clearly going to have a benefit beneficial impact on, on people or culture or I don't know the way we run our lives. Yeah, I do think you almost, yeah, you feel this this obligation to do it. Certainly my journey into understanding food I, I you know I, I debate this a little bit as to whether my job in in, in the restaurant world is to sell people what they want to buy or to be part of the education process around maybe we can do better but certainly as I've learn around where our food and where our drink comes from you know one of the motivations for launching this podcast is i think you know this is my industry i expect my accountants to know more about accounts and i expect you know pilots to know more about flying planes but i'm kind of like if i learn stuff in my journey of selling food and drink that i really think we should share actually it becomes this burning moral kind of uh yeah reason for being basically you go god i really think you guys should know this so i'm going to tell you what you do with that information is up to you but we should we should tell you i think you're right there is as long as it kind of still evokes appetite and positive experiences around food, then the way that you communicate those messages, I think it's important to say it, but there's a subtlety. I think, you know, there's nothing worse than sitting down with your family and being bombarded with a message. I think that sort of spoils that particular uh, experience of eating. Uh, and it kind of 
is emotive as well. You know, having an appetite is a wonderful thing. And you can act on that. It's raw and it's very emotive. And then anything positive or, or negative around that alters the experience. You know, you could think, actually, you know, I'm so upset by learning that, that I've gone off my food. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and that's not the purpose no. of hospitality. Yep. Uh, it's definitely yeah. about creating uh, a message, an environment that people can tap into that and take away with it. And your point earlier about you can't unlearn things. I think people do unlearn things. I think, you know, it's um, easy. Perhaps they don't un unlearn them. They park them or kind of realign them to suit their current purpose. I don't know. Speaking for myself, I'm at the age where if I've got one piece of new information, then an old piece of information has to go out. You know, it's one in, one out for me uh, at my age. But carrying on uh, learning, that, that that's... That's important, I guess. Definitely. I, I'm glad you said that because um, I tell my wife that a lot when she, she blames me for forgetting things. And I literally, I am at the point, there's so much going on in, in, in work and life. I'm like, yeah, it's one in, one out. You're going to have to choose the thing you're happy for me to forget, darling, if I'm going to slot that piece of information in. So it's, not, it's not my only dog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we will come back to, um, you know, the wonderful world of what goes on now. And I'm looking forward, I want to dive into, you know, your kind of uh, expertise a little bit around dairy and around charcuterie for some specific reasons. So we'll come back to that. But I do want to, you know, kind of get into this wasn't your, 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 you know, original existence in the same way that it wasn't for Hugh. You were a Manchester boy. You were in London. You, we talk about longevity of TV series. Somehow you were linked with Big Brother at some point, I think. Yeah. Can you just explain a little bit about, yeah, your, your trajectory, I suppose, of where you were and how you ended up here? Yeah. So I'm a career teacher's nightmare. I, I had no focus. I've done many, many things. A patchwork quilt of a career. And I've ended up working in food by accident uh, but thoroughly uh, in, enjoying it over the last 20 odd years. Uh, my, I guess my last previous grown up job uh, was uh, working in new media. And if you worked in new media, when I began to work in new media for 10 minutes, you were considered an expert. Nobody knew what it was. It was kind of websites. How do you monetize it? You know, advertising and, and TV schedules was still kind of the king. And um, I worked for uh, an agency um, in Brighton called Victoria Real uh, with my mate, Rob Love, who is a serial entrepreneur, a really interesting guy. And um, we were bought out by Endemol. And Endemol had just um, had this pitch from somebody in Holland about this TV programme that became Big Brother. And uh, myself and most people, including Rob at Victoria Real, were real keen sports enthusiasts. And we were live streaming uh, sports events to websites, which at that time was kind of unique because yeah. nobody knew what image rights belonged to who and Sky then kind of kicked in and started to take over all of the major Premier League. So it became quite interesting. And Rob inaugurated the British Windsurfing Championships in Shoreham. Uh, a, because he's a keen enthusiast and wanted to take part and B, because we wanted to stream it live to a website. And it got picked up and... Um, there was a visit by this guy uh, from Holland and he explained this programme that he'd piloted in uh, Holland that after the pilot got dropped because two people had sex 
on television. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and uh, we were thinking, blimey, this is a bonkers idea. And he wanted us to do the live streaming of the banal elements of people in the house as they go through their kind of daily existence. And of course, you know, at the time we thought, all right, let's do that. It's kind of weird, but, you know, it's never going to amount to anything. And I don't know if you remember, there was a character called Nasty Nick who got caught cheating, but he didn't get caught cheating live on TV. It happened online and he broke the internet. People going, hey, I've been, you know, all those people with jobs that hated those jobs watching people doing nothing on the website that we built for Big Brother and all the live streamings. All of a sudden it became a thing. People going, this guy got caught cheating on this programme. Oh, what's this programme? I've not been watching it. And it kind of fueled the viewing figures. And because it came from an online platform to a TV platform, it could be monitored. You could see actually how many people were engaging in it. And then as a programme, it kind of became more interesting both from a production point of view, but also from a social uh, experiment point of view. And that's when people like Carphone Warehouse or T-Mobile or, you know, I can't remember who else got involved in trying to pitch to sponsor the programme because it was all about getting people to go on their platform to vote. And it was mostly voting people off. This guy's an idiot, vote him off. And they charge a fee for that. And we hated it. Really, ultimately, it was kind of really sort of a bit vacuous and uh, not necessarily enjoyable. You, previously, you could turn up to the agency in Brighton and, you know, think, well, let's do some brilliant stuff with some really cool people. Next thing, we were on the six o'clock train to Shepherd's Bush Green with all of the other commuters and, and you know, it kind of narrowed the enjoyment out of it. And so uh, I followed Rob. Rob said, right, come on. Uh, what do we like? We like a bit of TV. Who do we like? And I think it's fair to say he probably stalked Hugh uh, for about six months uh, because he, he he started doing uh, the first series of River Cottage, but he'd previously done this great programme called A Cook on the Wild Side. And Rob said, that's the sort of TV that we should be doing. Aspirational. Doing something which uh, a lot of people can do at a certain level, like... Let's not just move to the countryside and try and live on a small holding. That's a bit of a leap. But let's try and grow some veg in a window box. Uh, and it, it kind of, for me, I just thought, yeah, that's that's great TV because it's wider than the TV. You can actually engage. Television talks about this thing called take home. You know, a lot of cookery programs talk about let's show this particular menu. And then there's a hope that people go and do it for themselves. Well, I think River Cottage had that in spades, mm. you know, people trying. And because Hugh often failed initially, like, you know, the pigs escaping or chewing through his boot or the slugs eating all of his veg, it kind of normalised it, made it more accessible. Yeah. And and that's how I ended up at River Cottage. Wow, OK. I did wonder when I was researching last night and I, I thought, guys, it's... it's uh... Yeah, such a contrast. Because Big Brother, when it started, I think, was such a unique thing. You know, the entire country, like you say, was obsessed about it. I've forgotten about Nasty Nick. Do you know where he is? Uh, he's, he's probably a TV exec now. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in perfectly. Um, Doing pantomime. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But it was such a yeah, sort of revolutionary genre at the time. But you're right. It did, it did 
quite quickly changed to become a bit vacuous and a bit and a bit depressing. You couldn't be more different. So it's interesting to know that actually there was a bit of you know genuine motivation there to go. You know what? That's exactly what we don't want to do. And all too often, what you don't want to do actually leads to what you do want to do, isn't it? It's kind of almost what's the opposite of that. It does. It can work out like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then you know, it, I didn't know I wanted to do what I did next. I had no idea. Um, in fact, you know, for a while, I kind of used to look around me going, you know, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder here and say, uh, Lammy, can I see your certificates, please? Uh, because, you know, you're not even a trained chef or anything like that. But it was the right time, right place. And I know we're going to go on to talk about it, but I don't come from a particularly foodie background. You know, it's not an auspicious CV. My family were kind of northern working class and we used to, get chased to the supermarkets to buy the most out of season, uh, least organic, cheap stuff, you know, and we didn't know any better. So I had a steep learning curve. But when I was exposed to the kind of traditional crafts like curing and smoking and uh, artisan and meeting these people, I thought, blimey, you know, this is great. I immediately started to feel comfortable because the stuff that I like is it kind of predates cookery mm. you know it's yep. sort of born out of necessity and i thought you know culturally i can get into this mm. i don't have to have the ability to make a particularly good souffle i like the traditional artisan crafts i think often it's exceptionally useful to uh, to not know too much about the topic you're talking about can't you? because then you can genuinely put your uh, well you, you genuinely are in the in the place of a learner and you come into it and ask questions that maybe people who've gone through chef school or kind of you know come into the industry in a traditional way don't think about asking and particularly when you're trying to make it relatable to the to the public much easier if you can come at it with some sort of yeah genuine kind of questions because you genuinely don't know the answers because you're fundamentally an imposter yeah totally and that's you know that's what my career was like in new media yeah. and i you know i hated it and it was full of people talking a good game and looking sharp and but you know very very close to the surface and it seemed that everybody was was playing out. i didn't want that for my next kind of leap into a brand new career in fact I, um, I I lived at River Cottage HQ in the farmhouse uh, for some time because I wanted to see the seasons change there. I wanted to uh, learn how to do the lambing. I wanted to grow stuff. I wanted to broaden my my knowledge. I wanted to kind of earn my stripes, so to speak, sort of slipstreaming what Hugh had done uh, for himself, and 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 that was great. Uh, but and I don't know if you've ever lived and worked in the same place. It's a it's a unique experience. For one, you're always on, you know, uh, and, and it's not like doing a shift down the mine, living on a hundred acre organic farm where people flock to see, uh, you know, uh, real work going on. But hospitality is a different energy, isn't it? Very much so. I, I have absolutely. I lived in the hotel that we set up for the first three years. And uh, yeah, so you never go home. And I, I was obsessive. You know, I checked every guest in, every guest out. I answered every phone call. Yeah, you're, you're in the building. You live it and breathe it. I think after two years, I employed somebody to at least be out the front, you know, some of the time behind the bar. But I would still be answering the calls. And I'd still, if there was a guest checking in, I'd still go out and see them. So, but it's funny with hospitality, isn't it? I imagine, you know, the people are different. The thing is with hospitality is it generally people are, are lovely. I think it's a reflex hospitality. I think if you throw something at somebody, most people will duck. And I think people who are born to be in hospitality hospitality 
automatically you walk into their space and they'll say, can I get you a cup of tea? Do you need anything? You know, have a seat. And yeah, there's just a certain genre of people and it makes it a real pleasure to hang out amongst those people, which I'm guessing maybe was different to the London TV scene. Very much so. Uh, although, you know, it was populated with good people um, and, um, you know, perhaps I didn't try hard enough to engage in that. But, I, you know, you're right. There is a certain, it's not a character type. I don't think it's a person. I think that, you know, you have to enjoy people. And uh, I think that culturally at River Cottage, you know, there are several people who don't come from a hospitality background, but there's a sort of underlying passion about believing in what they're doing. And, and, and that, gets, that gets you through. You know, and I, and I think it's not that you worry about super slick and being five star. It's about being genuine mm. and, uh, you know, sensitive and compassionate and doing something on behalf, whether it's on behalf of you, whether it's on behalf of uh, good hospitality, whether it's on behalf of uh, welfare. It, it's, a, it's a transaction. You want that to be good for everybody. And... If you have an off day, you kind of don't take it personally because all sorts of things happen. And I think, you know, being human, being a human of hospitality. Well, what a, what is, a, what a know, wonderful you know what link. See, that's, a great, yeah. that's a good name for a podcast. Though, yeah, well, maybe you yeah, should run with it's that. The, it's, the, it's the antidote to the brands of hospitality because I do, you're absolutely right. For me, you know, I say it's a reflex, it's in your DNA. 51%, I think, of hospitality isn't about coming from a hospitality background or being trained in it or even worked in it. It's being a decent human being, fundamentally. You know, hospitality is in you. It's it's the fact that, yeah, you you genuinely care about how other people feel. You have empathy. You're interested in making sure that they're comfortable. The rest of it, the industry side of it, you know, you can train and the chefing and the cooking. But fundamentally, it's been a decent human being, isn't it? We are born, I, I, you know, the antidote to the current social media online lives that we lead. And, and the reason that I still love food and drink so much is you sit around a table, you drink some wine, you break bread, you you, you communicate as human beings. And that that's hospitality. That's what we're kind of, it's our point of being on planet Earth, I think, with our friends and our family. It's about time with other human beings. Yeah, totally. I think so. And um, even, you know, I, I, I didn't, we didn't have that growing up. I don't know where it's come from for me. You know, uh, my dad was a bookie all his life, and so he kind of did all sorts of strange hours. Um, I was brought up with my mum, and my nan lived with my parents before me and my brother were born. And uh, it meant that my mum could go out to work. So uh, she wasn't a doctor or a solicitor. She kind of worked in every shop on Burnage Lane. And um, so we were kind of brought up by my nan. So it's a sort of older generation, uh, uh, kind of upbringing. And so we would come back from school and we had our, we used to call it tea then, but now we call it dinner. We used to have our dinner in front of the telly. And then my mum would come in and then my mum and my nan would sit in the back room and have their dinner and they would probably have something else, something different. And then my dad would rock up at all sorts of hours, occasionally bring a takeaway. And, uh, and, and he would have his dinner uh, really late uh, at night. And we never ate as a family unless it was Christmas Day. And then the, the the weird pressure of being around the table all at the same time, a very heightened, you know, part of the year, particularly culinary, was really tough. Yes, <laughs> you, know, you know, it People was like, the oh country my will God. be clapping to that and going, yeah, yeah that was weird. Eh? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally weird. And so um, when I started having a family, 
for myself, my wife, Ellie and I, we, 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 we sit around a table and we make one thing and it's, a, it's an event, you know, it's not fancy food. It's, it is, you're absolutely right. It's the idea of sitting down, having a chat. Quite often I go quiet around meals. You know, I've got three girls and, you know, they, they can just... Fill talk. the void. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. It's brilliant. It's, but, you know, listening as well is important, you know, around a dinner table. Uh, and so, you know, I can kind of just trickle into the background, enjoy the meal and enjoy what's going on around me and chip in every once in a while. And, and even, you know, back to River Cottage, there's this celebration of food because it's done banquet style. Everybody sits, long table. You and I would go for dinner. We'd sat, we'd be sat next to people that we don't yet know. You and I'd be sat opposite one another. And it's, um, everybody has the same, apart from dietary requirements, you know. And the food comes out and it's kind of everybody eating at the same time. It evokes a certain atmosphere around eating, which is wholly pleasurable. And I remember my first occasion of eating out as a kid, as a family. And we used to go to Bernie Inns and my dad used to take us to Bernie Inns on bonfire night. So we didn't have our own fireworks, right? We used to go on the bus to Bernie Inns and our fireworks night was looking through the bus windows, looking at everybody else's fireworks to then sit in an empty Bernie Inns restaurant and being confronted by more than one knife and fork thinking, Bloody hell, what is going on here? I do not know what to do. Getting into sweats, not being able to read the menu because all the words are sort of like jumping around, the pressure's on. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my beginning and anything now around a table is better than what it was in my past. And so, you know, I've got a keen sense of trying to maintain that. Mm. It's true. I think that that's there's been such a change in the genre of dining out, hasn't there? From exactly that, that kind of nervous. And I still say this to my uh, chefs now. Sometimes with the, you know in the evening, I insist that we've always got some simple food on the menu because in the evening the menus go a little bit more à la carte and a little bit more fancy. But I'm always I always think of my granddad actually, and I always think my granddad always had fish and chips, and yeah. he would panic if you sat him down and you put you put a sort of you know fancy menu where he didn't understand the words. You'd literally it'd be deeply uncomfortable for him. He'd be embarrassed and he would panic. And I'm always like, look, either put a burger or put a fish and chips on in the evening anyway, even if you want to do more of your à la carte and your fancy food. Not because I want people to buy them, but I just know they'll relax. As soon as they see it, they'll yeah. see something on the menu they understand and they know they can come back to it. So your job then is to try and get them to have something more interesting and, and, and try something a bit different. But at least they know they can just relax and yeah, enjoy the evening. So Yeah, I think that's uh, you know that that's true. If you're going out, it's a kind of commitment, isn't it? It's, it's like, right, we're going to go out. It's still a thing for me. You know, we're going out, we're going out. hope it's going to be really good. Uh, but, you know, you do have to kind of uh, be able to, to re relax into it. And that's where good hospitality comes into it. Um, I, I, oddly enough, um, you will always find on one of the River Cottage menus something slightly challenging. And, you know, deliberately so, which is um, part and parcel of the experience, I suppose. There's always a message behind it. But if you go to a restaurant, like River Cottage HQ and go to one of the Friday or Saturday night dinners, you don't have the choice of choosing for yourself. You're kind of told what you're having. Of course, you can have um, seasonal 
high welfare organic, or if we know the producer and we know how they're working, the label of organic doesn't necessarily have to come to the fore because you trust the people uh, who are producing it and uh, they don't necessarily go for that particular uh, labelling, but it's quality. And so what are considered potentially lowly cuts like offal or perhaps... um, because we're dealing with the seasons, some of, of, of the veg, you know, they're kind of put together on a plate to, uh, the message is, you know, try this because it's amazing and this is what we've got and we work by the seasons and it kind of stops people being prohibitive about their their, their choices. It's, a, it's a, Within a six-course dinner, I think it's fair to set somebody a challenge. Absolutely. You know, it's not, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. No, absolutely. It, no. It's, a, it's a message. Yeah, definitely, it. yeah. And it, and it is the nice thing to do. I, I, I used to drive uh, people bonkers that whenever I'd go to a restaurant, particularly kind of Asian restaurant, anywhere where I was faced with a big menu, I'd just be like, can you just tell the chef, you know, like, here's a budget. Can you just send out some food, just some things he likes making or if he's got anything that's in season or something on the specials, I'm kind of like, I really don't mind, just, just send it out. And they would be my favourite places to eat. Yeah, and people are with you deliberately awkward, and I'd be like, no, but chef should know. And then people ask, how would you like it cooked? And I say, I'll have it cooked, whatever the chef thinks is is best. It's kind of like that's their profession, that's what they do. Just send me some nice food. I've yeah. become a little bit more difficult uh, of late, just around a lack of trust of some of the uh, at River Cottage. I would eat whatever you gave me, but in general, yeah, being much more on a sort of whole food plant based diet for the last eighteen months, yeah, just because I've been learning a lot and and I've actually really enjoyed cooking some different food, but also yeah, in, unless I kind of trust where that food's come from I've been that's mildly more difficult so it's been harder to do but I, I absolutely agree you should you should try some different but as a consumer that's your right yes isn't it definitely yeah, yeah. 100% yeah, yeah. Um, so before we come into the the detail of uh, you now have a reputation for a you know, pr- remarkably broad role but I'm just interested that you know, I don't know if you how you rock up at River Cottage and get a job clearly and Steve Jobs makes this point you alluded to it just now you join the dots looking backwards not looking forwards you know there was no way you could have said hey Hugh I want this job because it's just evolved with your learning and your progression back in the early days what what was the job what were you doing on day one when you rocked up well, um, so uh, again, as I just follow on from that kind of new media element, uh, uh, we, we built the online presence for River Cottage because Hugh didn't have that. Uh, uh, it wasn't a website. Socials weren't necessarily part of it. It was a TV and it was the window onto the world. And so we wanted to kind of help generate uh, more engagement. Um, I mean, there's always the... the, the there was always the idea of physically having a place called Rift Crosses that people could come to, but that hadn't happened yet. And so it was an online community that we helped create. And, and, and I was the company secretary initially, and I was the only person allowed to sign checks and, and that has changed you know that that that's changed that's quite a funny first job what do you what do you do i, I sign checks that's not bad is it? Well, yeah, high. you know and so like you know hugh and rob kind of pulled together and, and created uh you know hfw interactive that's what the company was called and so my job was once we created the the website and started to put content in there and Hugh would feed into it, there was a, an e-commerce element where you could buy Hugh's books. And I think at that point he'd written uh, Cook on the Wild Side and uh, the River Cottage Cookbook. And so the other part of this kind of made-up job that I had would be uh, if books were being 
bought online, then I would get books from the publisher. I would drive to Hugh's house uh, from Brighton to Dorset. I would sit around the table with Hugh and he would personalise those books. And once he'd done that, I would take those books, take them to the nearest post office and send them out. And that, that was the kind of, apart from being company, Secretary. I was going to say, not not every company secretary would take on the uh, the, the also the delivery of the books to the post office. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. I, I love that in the fact that uh, in the early days, presumably, it felt like that startup phase where fundamentally, what's your job? And my job is whatever needs doing today. Kind of yeah. thing. It's like I'll I'll do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, right time, right place. And then there then there was a physical place where uh, we could start to do. Um, aspects of what we'd shown on the TV. So there was the first River Cottage HQ, which was uh, an old, uh, what was it, old dairy farm building that we kind of uh, rented and, and, and took over and started to hold courses and dinners there. And, and then my role was like hosting those events. It's kind of event management, hosting those event events and those dinners, uh, learning hospitality, from a kind of standing start, being exposed to people like Ray the butcher, Pam the jam, Michael Mishu the veg grower, Hugh, people who'd kind of were living and working physically doing those things. And because I was in close proximity watching them do it throughout their courses and events, it just became the best apprenticeship ever. Running events, working alongside some really good people, doing some kind of really progressive, interesting work, celebrating the countryside and culturally amongst the team, creating something really amazing, mm. a really brilliant community. People used to kind of come and to work and you know how currently there's this awful churn rate of people in hospitality. Well, you came to River Cottage and you thought, blimey, this is unique. And ultimately, we've got people there who've been there since the beginning. It's like being in the Waltons. You know, it's like being in a family. Uh, and, you know, although my role there has, has changed, I kind of am um, there part of my time. But for what it's worth, everything that I've learned at River Cottage now has a value outside of River Cottage. And that's great, isn't it? Where you kind of have a period of learning and it means everything internally. But things that I've learned in River Cottage now have a meaning with other brands and with other people and people who are in kind of, you know, big commercial brands. They want an aspect of what we created there so that they can also uh, include that into their own business culture and, and that's why i find myself now still a made-up job mm, yeah right? absolutely still no job title yeah right no clear trajectory of you know sous chef head chef executive chef that's you know i haven't got that it's just learning and what i've learned i've been able to apply in a very broad sense and it and it's you know i love what i do but i just don't think you can put it on a business card no and and it's I think it's the same you know so many people that I interview yeah there there was no you know direct kind of logical route and I think that's the most exciting thing isn't it you go through life you learn you meet people the, the longer you go through life the more people you learn the more people the more people you meet and the more interesting opportunities kind of tend to present themselves I, I tell my kids 
this. And I think I was just very fortunate to learn it very young. Because I think as a kid in the school, you kind of presume that grown-ups know what they're doing and they've got this kind of plan <laughs> and this trajectory. And I was like, everybody's winging it, right? Yeah. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, things present themselves on a daily basis and we deal with them. I always say to my team, you know, they say, you cope very well in stressful environments when things go wrong. And I was like, look, my job fundamentally is to deal with things when they go wrong. A lot of the time, it's my own, not my only job. But ultimately, when they do, it often comes back to me. And I was like, the earlier in the day that we can get something to go wrong, the better, because it means I can get onto all the good stuff. So yeah. if, if everything's gone wrong by half eight, I'm like, it's going to be an amazing day. Look, it's completely <laughs> tits up now. We'll deal with all of this. And then, yeah, we'll be fine then. The rest of the day is going to be awesome. Yeah. And, that's just, and I tell my managers this when they have bad days or they're trying to deal with problems. And I'm like, you know, if these problems weren't here, I wouldn't need you. So like, be excited by that problem and go, yes, this is while I'm here. Get it done. And then crack on with your day, basically. So, well, I, I think there's a there's a code of conduct, a code of conduct for managers there that you ought to be sticking down on paper. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so, passing around. Yeah, yeah, true. I want to get into a detail, particularly uh, around Ray, and I know you became um, really interested in, in charcuterie and curing meats, but just yeah. finally before we do. So River Cottage at that point, it, it didn't, it, I'm guessing it didn't have a planned trajectory where, look, you know, here's the next 10 years mapped out, here's our strategy. It felt like it kind of evolved. Yeah. What does it, you know, what, were there any kind of big things that happened? Because it felt in the early days it was very much about TV and, and that's felt less so of late and yeah. you've become much more multifaceted. You know, what, what is River Cottage now and were there, any, were there any kind of key turning points as to, um, you know, how, how River Cottage ended up being what it is today, I suppose? Um, I'm sure there was a plan. And, but, you know, I don't know what that was in the early days. Um, but, you know, River Cottage has perhaps grown up. It's, it, it's developed and um, it, it's now uh, a, a working farm. It's a cookery school, both for keen domestic gods and goddesses to come and learn who have an interest in food, but also training their professionals. Uh, there's another layer underneath that where we have an apprenticeship scheme of getting people working into hospitality. Um, it's um, a place where you come and eat, of course, and you can come and stay there. And, and perhaps a new development is um, there's this well-being. We've kind of opened up to this notion of good practice, good food, good experience, good hospitality. And there's mindfulness and, and well-being and wellness retreats and nutrition and gut health. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it has changed a lot. Um, still, though, has the same principles that underpin it. I think, I'm not, I'm not a marketeer, but, you know, I know that if you've got a core set of values, that work, you can apply them in many ways. Uh, and so I think we've also expanded beyond the farm. We have uh, kitchens, canteens, which I suppose most people would refer to as, um, you know, on-street restaurants where you can rock up and have a River Cottage breakfast or lunch or, or dinner. And that's all about footfall. It's not about creating an event to get people there. Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's another extension of the brand as well, which I was really involved in. Um, I, 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 I know that River Cottage has immense value and we get on the farm, you know, roughly 20, 25,000 people a year. 
But most of those people know who we are and we know what we're about and they come and they know that they will have a brilliant experience. Beyond that, we have a massive community of people who follow us online on, on TV. But I thought it'd be interesting to try and extend that. And uh, we, we've partnered with uh, an organisation that manages the catering in venues way beyond the comfort of the Devon-Dorset border. These are people who uh, run the catering teams at O2 Arena, Excel, Somerset House, uh, Hatfield House, venues that you would go to for a concert or a football match or a big gathering with thousands of other people and be exposed to mediocre concourse food fare. And so I helped launch this new uh, extension of, of River Cottage whereby we have a presence in some of these venues, Whipsnade Zoo being one which is kind of, you know, you think about zoos and river cottages, you think, what the hell are you doing there? Uh, of course, it's a, a ZSL, Zoological Society, where it's all about um, breeding programmes and trying to get uh, animals back out in uh, into the wild from captivity. So it's kind of unlike most zoos. Anyway, you know, by rights, we shouldn't be there. But it works really well because the incumbent team, which are quite often agency teams in these venues, they come to River Cottage, they get... Uh, they come through the cookery school at River Cottage. They are culturally ingrained in what we do. They work to our specifications. We're very strict about uh, sourcing policy uh, and we uh, kind of create the menus that they then have to execute. And it works really well because the staff feel as if they are doing something more than just being an agency chef. They're doing something which is of interest. Uh, it's great for us because it exposes River Cottage to people uh, outside of those 25,000 people who come on site knowing that, what they want to do. And for the organisation, which is a global organisation which run these kitchens, it's interesting for them because they're going, actually, this kind of sourcing policy that you've restricted us to is kind of quite interesting because, you know, the way that we buy food, we ought to look at that. And we ought to look about our impact that that would have on our business. And they're starting to kind of internalise that relationship. So yes, it's having an effect for us, positive one. Uh, yes, it's having uh, uh, exposure to people who wouldn't necessarily be looking for it. And they're having a great... Uh, food experience in a venue that perhaps previously they wouldn't have had. But the organisation that we're working with and partner with are seeing the positive impact on their staff, on their culture of what it is like to work with an ethos rather than just for profit. That's amazing if you can deliver that at scale as well with your ethos. Because it's are these branded. I'm, so I'm thinking of the O2 because you mentioned the O2, and I'm yeah. thinking, my God, it's huge. You've got like yeah. I don't know how many, you know, t t tens of thousands of people in there. You, are you who are you feeding there? You clearly can't feed everybody. Is this is, is there a particular is there a River Cottage kitchen there, or you're behind the scenes feeding people who work there? How does well, it work? Well, actually, um, at the O2, that we we, uh, we we trialed a couple of things and. Um, uh, the the sites that we are currently in, uh, Hatfield House, Glyndebourne, 
uh, Whipsnade, we've been in Excel. Uh, there are other venues that we're, we're going to be in, but the people that we are feeding are they're going for uh, they're going to go to a concert they're going to go to a convention they're going to go for a show uh, you know they're going to go there for light entertainment and and you're part of the uh, of, of the food offering but it's clearly river cottage mm. okay yeah now now you say the excel branded. one i think i've seen it so it's branded as, as river yeah. cottage isn't it yeah uh, and then you also mentioned then um and, you know this is about the hospitality industry so i suppose it's why it jumps out but your chef school where you train people in the industry how long do they come in to be trained with you then is this a, is this a traditional so sort of on, mbq qualification or is this specific the apprenticeship oh yeah they're kind of classic mvq but if we're working with uh, a, a partner as i suggested then it's a full program that we kind of revisit throughout the year there's a commitment there to getting the teams through uh, as often as they like certainly uh, once every new season and i mean new season in the kind of autumnal uh, or, or summer season and but people who come as a customer to roof cottage they can be there for one day two days or four days right Okay, so and you do get professional chefs, you know, who work yeah. in the industry who come down and do a do a four day course as a as a top up or to learn some new skills. Yeah, 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 nice. yeah. and they'll learn about um, you know total nose to tell where they'll get a whole carcass in and they'll break that down as opposed to having just a sirloin appear mm-hmm. uh, every week at their restaurant and and so those kind of uh, skills uh, we're, we're heavy on working with the whole caucus and and that introduces creativity and uh, it makes people aware of how much food waste they've got in their own industry uh, they'll learn aspects of meat of course uh, bread veg uh, gut health and we always like to do a little bit of um, seafood of course but wild food as well there'll definitely be a forage outside and get some of that kind of produce that people have forgotten about which uh comes from the great wild food larder of the british countryside yeah nice and there's a need for that because the traditional kind of cookery schools and i don't think it's changed but you know the classic kind of college routes all seem all too often certainly were missing it i hope it's changing but i remember speaking to you know some of my head chefs certainly 10 years ago and i remember chatting to a specific guy about fish and, and responsible kind of fishing and what we should be selling and his response was, you know, it's God's choice if there's any fish in the sea. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I really think we can do a lot better than that. And yeah. actually, even recently, trying to get people to understand what I think is a responsibility to understand nutrition. And you talk about gut health and stuff. I kind of think, look, this is our job. You know, this is what we do. We should at least understand it. Yeah, if somebody wants to just order a, a brulee or a crumble and custard and, you know, they know it's going to have a, an impact on their health, that's fine. But we should at least try and always have stuff on the menu that's, that's whole food. You know, when we introduced our plant-based burger as we start to understand a little bit more it's like, i don't want to just buy something from a you know from a mass producer and chuck it in a fryer it's like not only can it be can it be plant-based but can it be really nutritious you know can we use black beans and beetroot and quinoa and you know brown rice and all that kind of stuff and actually make something phenomenal but actually getting chefs to yeah i don't know to appreciate the opportunity they've got i suppose to have a responsibility to understand nutrition has been interesting and it, it, it's finally changing but it's always surprised me that that's not been deeply ingrained in the traditional chef training system for the last 50 years. So you experienced that and a part of the solution by the sounds of it. Yeah, but, you know, in the in the kind of early days where, you know, nutrition was something that, you know, people were going, oh, actually, you know, we've got responsibility here. A lot of the food that I ate that was, you know, came from, well, it's kind of nutritional and it's got health. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I think oh, it's actually a bit bland. 
it's almost kind of anti-enjoyment food, you know, and 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 and, and, and that it an extreme, and and what I think now is that there's this kind of creativity, uh, and there's this willingness to make it delicious and nutritious, very much, you know, and and I think that it's it, it is turning into um, a movement, mm. you know, it's the science, it's the food, it's the biology, it's the enjoyment. You've still got to have all of those aspects. Very much. Otherwise, you're kind of only doing... It's the only way we're going to change it. We've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, our, our moral responsibility came out with the World Health Organization's, you know, pl- more plant-based diet and all that kind of stuff and going, actually, you know, what's our obligation as restaurateurs? We didn't come on the planet to make, you know, the place worse. If anything, we'd like to make it better and at least leave it neutral. But I think once we understood that you, you could provide people but a really good quality flavoursome alternative. When, when I bit into that plant-based burger and went, oh my God, if anything, it might actually be better than the beef burger. It's not, finally, it's not a compromise. And then yeah. we were proud enough to put it next to the beef burger on the menu and go, you know what, the, the actually our role is to, is to help people make that transition. Not to just kind of like, you know, take everything off the menu that people enjoy eating, but to say, look, there is an alternative here and it's really tasty and just try it a couple of times and you'll find, you know what, we're part of the solution. We can tell, hold people's hands, take them on that journey and show, you know what, doing three or four days a week without meat is probably much easier than you think it is now because of that creativity and understanding of flavour, I think. Uh, absolutely and you know i definitely subscribe to that eating less meat and uh but of a higher quality mm, when eat you less do. eat better yeah but you know that also has to be the same for all of the food that you eat it can't just be uh you know just making do you know i'm not i'm not eating meat i'll just make do with something mm. i'm actually my stomach's rumbling as i'm talking yeah, yeah, about me, me yeah. too i realized i didn't, didn't, didn't yeah. have my breakfast we yeah. were chatting a couple of weeks ago uh yeah. Andrew um, Stephen from the Sustainable Restaurant Association about yeah. exactly this. Saying, look, people think they're making the right choices, and this is where it gets too complicated for us to dive into now. But you know, even down to what the animal eats. So you think you're buying a local animal that's been reared, you know, locally and had a great life, and then you find out that it's being fed soy, and it's being yeah. fed soy that's come from the Amazon, and you yeah. think, oh god, how did that get so hard? You know, you I think know. you're making the right decisions. So, when you uh, when you start looking behind the curtain, it's a little bit. A little bit daunting. Even, you know, my passion, you know, is smoking and curing. And there's, you know, if you eat an accumulation of smoked and and cured goods, particularly uh, commercial stuff that's been processed, then you're letting yourself in for, you know, a bit of a shock. And um, we talked about nutrition. My particular thing about uh, healthy food in that sector is nitrites Mm. and, you know, synthesised curing agents which are kind of piled into poorly processed uh, bad food such as kind of shop-bought bacon and the like is really going to unravel it's already unraveling in front of us I was brought up on that sort of stuff and now I make stuff for myself uh, and at River Cottage we don't use these kind of additional curing agents and it's you know it's worrying because there are lots of reports about how it's Potentially, I'm going to put that in inverted commas, but I think I know the answer, uh, is the cause of a lot of gut illness, colonic bowel cancer, behavioural problems uh, in kids. You know, I think that's going to be the next big thing, or perhaps it's just so clearly on my radar that I think it's going to be the next big thing. Definitely on my radar as well, yeah. So you're, you're right, probably, you know, you end up, so what you buy a yellow car and all you see is yellow cars isn't it so you you understand this issue and you think everybody gets it and probably people don't so dive into a detail of it what, what are nitrates what? well yeah so so a nitrate can be something like saltpeter 
which is uh, a natural element. And that's the original nitrate that was added into sausages in uh, Austria. And it's there to kind of stop an outbreak of, of botulism. But um, nitrates are added to bacon, sausages, hams, um, as a way of making them safe, bizarrely. So a lot of the bacon that we eat, a lot of the hams that we eat, a lot of uh, those cured goods are not cured at all. Um, a lot of the bacon that we've had exposure to, for example, has been injected with salt and water to make it taste like bacon. That's why a packet of bacon has a short shelf life. You buy it today, you've got six days potentially in which to eat it. And nobody questions that. Nobody thinks, hang on, I thought this was cured. And it's not. And if you don't cook it in that time, it will start to go green and slimy. And then you look at the top rusher and the subsequent rushers as you open the packet, once you get beyond the use by sell by date conundrum, and it's got this kind of oil slick petrol sheen. And you think, well, that's nice and pretty. That's slightly hypnotic under the right light. You don't wonder what that is. You just go, mm, nice. And that is the effect of a nitrate, which has been applied to that meat to fix the myoglobin in the meat to make it look pink. So it's an aesthetic enhancer. Um, when you cook roast pork, it goes from a slightly pink raw colour to an off-white grey colour, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and nobody questions that. But bacon doesn't do that. Bacon goes from pink to a slightly darker pink or kind of red. And, and, and that's because it's been controlled to look like that. And um, the nitrate's also been added there because the meat has been injected with water and salt. It makes it way heavier. You pay more for that. And this is the stuff that bubbles out of it. When you buy bacon like that and you cook it, it's already shrinking as it hits the pan. And you say, once this is boiled for a few minutes, it might fry because all this grey-white precipitation is coming out of it. And, and, and that kind of Frankenstein bacon is such an unstable product. Fresh meat is unstable. If you then add in more moistness, bad bacteria love moistness in meat, it becomes less stable and a nitrate is added to make that poor process and that poor quality meat safe to eat for at least five days. The problem there, you might think, fair enough, it's safe to eat. But the effect of those nitrates, when you cook them, they create nitrosamines, and those are the carcinogenic elements of that food. So carcinogenic pertains to cancer, and these are the results that are coming through. The WHO, you mentioned that, cited this as a, as a major issue. I, I, it wasn't a particularly precise uh, report I found, I'm not criticising it, but it kind of said red meat and certainly processed meats like bacon probably give you cancer. And I support that to a degree, but it didn't talk about high welfare. It didn't talk about artisan craft. And it certainly didn't talk about people like uh, one of my food heroes is a guy called Dennis Lynn, and he runs uh, Finnebroke artisan uh, bacon. He makes naked bacon, okay? And he's one of the few people commercially making bacon without nitrates. And it's really, really good bacon. And uh, he's an agitator. He's, he's brilliant. Yeah. He's provocative. He's out there challenging everybody commercially making bacon. And uh, I think he's onto a winner. That's good. 
as a result of that, is it a lot more expensive? Or? No. Really? No. So what's the correct process then? If, if, if that's fundamentally what we've learned, almost how to cheat the system of making bacon, how should bacon be made traditionally? Good quality meat and uh, cured with uh, good quality salt, applied to the minimum, not heavy-handed. Uh, a lot of people think that salt is the devil's ingredient. It's my favourite ingredient in the whole world. Uh, and there's a subtlety at play where you can add the minimum amount of salt to a piece of fresh meat that will cure it, anything less than that, and you're seasoning it. So you work to the minimum using amazing salt. There's some brilliant uh, uh, products, people making amazing salt, uh, gourmet salts out there. And uh, time. Time, not as a herb, although you can use that, <laughs> but time as in time passing as an ingredient. Things take time. It's the antithesis of fast food, Mark. Yeah, that's the issue, isn't that's it? Time, that's the thing we're always trying to solve, isn't it? It's yeah. the time issue. Time yeah. makes it more expensive, often. Yeah. Okay, is that the sort of thing? So you can you buy that proper bacon in can. the supermarkets or you, do you have to go to a more artisan? Well, you have it? to find it. The, 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 the most accessible uh, is naked bacon uh, that we've discussed. And, uh, and and that's successful because it's been stocked in several supermarkets, whereas normally you would have to buy from the producer, the artisan person making that craft, uh, which is easy enough once you start digging down into it. There are a few people making amazing products, not using nitrates. In fact, uh, a good mate of mine, uh, Steve Williams, who came on my courses at River Cottage, uh, and then applied what he learnt on the courses and created uh, a company called Good Game. And he makes his own nitrate-free stuff really successfully, you know, but he had a struggle with the Environmental Health Officer and the Food Standards Agency. He really had to hold their hand, take them through the process, have a robust HACCP, which is this kind of auditing plan of how food changes using traditional crafts and they 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 were very progressive the people that wanted them to succeed uh, and you know does it really really well on the whole the rules applied to making mass-produced commercial bacon is still governed by having to use nitrites mm. and nitrates and, and that's the issue there's a whole world of learning or as you suggested, unlearning to, to, to happen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players, of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday